When we think of the routine medical exam, there are a series of steps we associate with good practice, and checking a patient's blood pressure is certainly one of them. And we all know the drill, and if the blood pressure is normal, we can pretty much forget about it and move on to other things. However, for millions of Americans who turn out to have high blood pressure, and not just at one reading on one particular day, there are a series of things that should be done to help bring the condition under control. Medications can be effective, as can change in diet and lifestyle. So it seems pretty straightforward, and yet somewhere in this process, it's estimated that about 30 million Americans with hypertension don't have it under control and aren't getting the benefit of treatment. Access to health care is one factor, but it turns out providers with hypertensive patients right in front of them are falling short too. So what's the gap about and what can be done to close it? We're going to learn about an, a campaign that hopes to get pretty darn close That's our focus on this edition of WYHI. And welcome to WYHI. We hope you enjoyed a little bit of our summer boppy music. We figure that's good for blood pressure. Um, We are an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we are offered biweekly. And later, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Measure Up, Pressure Down. That's the name of the campaign, is the brainchild of the American Medical Group Foundation, which is challenging the American Medical Group Association member medical groups across the country to take advantage of the work and the findings of some earlier collaboratives that innovated and honed some best practices. It's a terrific improvement journey, and WIHI is fortunate to have major players here to tell us about it. Also, I want to remind everybody, if you're into tweeting, you can, if you wouldn't mind, please include hashtag. IHI in your tweets. Uh, IHI's Twitter handle is at the IHI. So let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that they have longer bios and all sorts of accomplishments on some of their own organization's websites and also on our web pages for this particular program. But in brief, Dr. Ola Akinbabaye is the medical director at Laurelton Heart Specialist PC and Strong Health Medical PC in Rosedale, New York. He's an associate professor of clinical medicine at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University and president of the Association of Black Cardiologists. Welcome to WIHI. Allah. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right, great. Bob Matthews is president and CEO of MediSync, which has had total management responsibility for three medical groups in southwest Ohio since 1997. These management partnerships include a multi-specialty group, a primary care group, and a specialty group. Mr. Matthews served as executive director at all three medical groups from 1997 to 2010. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Great. Dr. Phil Ifantides, and I'm learning all kinds of wonderful names today. Dr. Phil Ifantides, and he can correct me if I didn't get it quite quite right, has been with Sharp Reese Steely Medical Group in San Diego, California since 2006. In addition to full-time patient care, he serves on the group's board of directors and as physician champion for their diabetes quality program. He previously served as chairman of clinical guidelines and physician champion for the group's successful hypertension quality program. Glad you're with us, and I'm told you're called Dr. Phil. That's right, Dr. Phil Efantidis. Thank you, Matt. Efantidis. Okay, great. And welcome, finally, Dr. Jerry Penso, who joined the American Medical Group Association in September 2012 as the Chief Medical and Quality Officer. In his role at AMGA, Dr. Penso works to design, develop, and implement the organization's initiatives related to quality management and research. He oversees efforts at AMGA's philanthropic arm, the American Medical Group Foundation, and it is there, this foundation's new campaign that we're talking about today. So welcome, Jerry. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Very quickly, because we got a lot to, of ground to cover, but it is just an interesting way for us all to get some lay of the land. We're going to do a very quick WebEx poll, uh, just with um, a sense of maybe some of your chief concerns and what might have brought you to today's program, and that'll kind of serve as a reference for all of us today. Uh, and it's just one question, and John's going to flash it up there. It's a WebEx poll, and my apologies in advance for those 
those of you who are on the phone. Uh, we don't have enough time to kind of make this work in every telephonic way, so we do have it as a WebEx poll, and we'll be sure to share the answers. So here's the question. Which of the following impedes your ability to provide the best care for patients with hypertension? And we have a series of answers, possible answers, and we're asking you to choose your top three that apply. So here are the possibilities. We don't have systems in place to track and follow up with patients with high blood pressure. Our staff who take patients' blood pressure are inadequately trained. Physicians see their role as prescribing medication and little else. Patients don't stick with their medications or adhere to self-management practices. Finally, no one in our practice takes the time to talk with patients about their concerns and preferences. So the way the WebEx poll goes, which you can see on your chat, excuse me, chat screen, go ahead and take part in it. We're going to keep going with our program, and maybe in about uh, 10 minutes I'll come back and we'll take a look at the answers. Also, if you didn't like any of the options we provided, feel free to chat in some other ideas about things that you think are in the way for best care for patients with high blood pressure. All right, Jerry Penso, we're going to start with you. Um, I uh, just have to ask, uh, and maybe this is a naive question, but I think it could come as a surprise to at least some of us uh, that something quite basic and widely known, which is taking blood pressure and then what to do when there is high blood pressure, is actually not necessarily hitting a home run. And I wonder if just in a quick way before we get into talking about the campaign itself, why do you think that's the case? In America, I think we have a healthcare system that performs incredibly well for acute problems like heart attacks. So if you call 911 with chest pain, in many communities there's a system of care that's activated. It might include an ambulance that picks you up right away and it's equipped with an EKG that then transmits that signal right away to an emergency department and that emergency department is staffed and ready to handle an acute heart attack. And once you arrive at the uh, hospital, the care team rapidly does all the necessary tests, alerts the proper crew like a cardiologist or a cath lab, and prepares everything for your arrival. And if you do need your artery opened up, they'll have you in the cath lab within 90 minutes of arrival. And, And doing that is important because every minute that there's a delay, you could further damage your heart. And I'd like to contrast that with high blood pressure management. Perhaps you go to your doctor's visit and your blood pressure may be high. Your physician might ask you to watch your diet, reduce your salt intake, exercise, and then come back in three months. And it doesn't seem to be the same type of urgency that we have around a heart attack, both on just how the message is given to the patient and also just developing those type of a system like the heart attack that makes sure that everything is done right for the patient. So, dear, you must have then, <laughs> I know this campaign was in the making for a while, sort of drawing on early work. So now's your kind of four minutes, I guess, to give us a sense of what this campaign is all about and really what it's drawing upon in terms of best work out there. So the American Medical Group Foundation is really committed to improving patient care through are coordinated medical groups. And one of the things the foundation learned is, first of all, how important high blood pressure is. turns out that one out of three American adults has high blood pressure, or 67 million Americans. And as you mentioned, Madge, half of those aren't even under control. According to the CDC, high blood pressure caused or contributed to deaths of more than 348,000 Americans in 2009, or that's about 1,000 deaths Per day. So we saw that as an important problem. The American Medical Group Association, who I represent, is made up of 430 leading medical groups and healthcare systems across the country. In fact, we're in 49 out of 50 states. And we decided to take on this challenge of uncontrolled high blood pressure. Our national campaign, as you mentioned, is called Measure Up, Pressure Down. And we wanted to challenge, if you will, our groups to achieve really high rates of blood pressure control. So the groups that sign on to the campaign have agreed by the year 2016 for the campaign to have 80% of their patients at goal according to national standards, which are GNC7 currently, 
And we also wanted to get as many of our groups as possible to sign on to the campaign. We also are interested in empowering engaging patients because they and their families have just such an important role in blood pressure control. Now, the campaign didn't just grow out of nowhere. In the past four years, we've had what are called collaboratives, learning collaboratives with over 30 of our leading participating medical groups, and you're going to hear from some of them today. These groups were able to really develop standardized care processes that move the needle on blood pressure. So with the help of an expert panel, we distilled these care processes into what we're calling eight campaign planks. And these campaign planks are literally the roadmap that if the groups adopt these specific care processes, we're very confident that they'll achieve the 80% mark. So we're challenging our groups to really adopt as many of these planks as possible and measure and improve blood pressure control in their, uh, in their populations. The other aspects of the campaign, we're here in a supportive role. We want our medical groups who are participating to succeed, so we're offering things like a website, Measure Up Pressure Down, that's open to actually the entire public, not just the campaign members. And on there, what's really exciting, we just published a provider toolkit. And that toolkit has tips, resources developed by AMJ groups, and best practice case studies that will help the groups understand how best to how best to control blood pressure. And all these resources, as I mentioned, are free of charge to the public. And I want to say one last thing. We're very encouraged by the response so far. In the first six months of the campaign, we launched in November of uh, 2002. We now have 147 medical groups signed up, and they represent 42 million patient lives. And I think we're really beginning to gain traction because these groups, these AMGA groups, know and trust their peers and don't want to be left behind. There's a real desire, I think, to be part of something bigger that improves patient lives. Jerry, thank you very much. And uh, we just had one little uh, glitch. We were trying. We wanted to show everyone um, the slide that has the uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, the eight process planks. Um, and rather than taking up a lot of time reviewing those, um, John will. Ch- he's going to provide the link to the toolkit, and we'll repeat that. All the stuff will also be in the resources that we provide uh, that go along with this program. That'll all be available by tomorrow morning on IHI.org. But again, you can certainly go to the Measure Up Pressure Down website and find everything as well. But the process goals, uh, you know, include direct care staff trained in accurate blood pressure measurement, hypertension guidelines used and adherence monitored, blood pressure addressed for every hypertension, excuse me, hypertension patient, every primary care visit, and so on. So they're very, very good uh, things that everyone is striving toward. All right, Jerry, thanks for that outline. Um, I'm going to now move on over or move out to San Diego and Phil, uh, Dr. Phil. So we do have you and your colleagues at Sharpery Steely Medical Group in San Diego to thank for many of the best practices and measure up pressure down. Um, And uh, the toolkit, and you are described as a hypertension physician champion. So that caught my eye, and it made me want to ask you right off, are physicians engaged in this issue as much as they need to be, given some of the gaps uh, that we're seeing with what's going on with high blood pressure now? Well, that's, uh, that's really the crux of the question. As physicians, we, I think, consider ourselves uh, competent and that we're doing a good job, and um, I'm in a multi-specialty group. We have over 400 physicians, over 100 primary care um, physicians taking care of adult patients. But we never, until we got our electronic health record, we never actually knew um, on, uh, with our whole population how we were doing on blood pressure control. And in 2005 to 2006, we were surprised to see that we were kind of average. We only had 53% of our population of patients with diagnosed blood pressure at goal. Those are the people we knew about. So uh, in 2005, um, we really set about the hard work of, of basically developing processes to improve uh, not only blood pressure control, but um, control of patients with chronic disease like congestive heart failure um, diabetes, and actually in 2005, we started with a diabetes improvement program, 
and we kind of developed an, our, our philosophy of change. And Dr. Jerry Penso was actually our uh, medical director of quality and continuum of, cha- of, of care for the group. And we developed this philosophy of change that would drive and still is driving all of our quality efforts. Um, number one, we have to make the case for what we're trying to accomplish. And that's a really important step to get physicians uh, and also staff to buy in to what we're trying to do. Um, Secondly, we have to give performance feedback on a regular basis, and we decided to do that in an unblinded fashion, literally giving the physicians report cards on how they were doing in their own quality efforts. Uh, Third, we spent a lot of time and still spend time in coaching and training the physicians and also uh, the medical staff in, in our quality improvement processes. And fourthly, we celebrate success. Uh, we recognize and, and celebrate positive deviants who are doing a great job, but we also have built in incentives to drive quality performance. And we realize quality improvement takes time. So I can briefly share with you kind of what, what we did. Um, we started with diabetes quality, but then in 2008, after we successfully improved our diabetes uh, population's control, we decided to take on blood pressure, and we chose to do this specifically with our patients with diabetes since we had that population well-defined. We set up a pilot program, uh, which I ran in my practice at our most northern site in Rancho Bernardo, San Diego County, and we did kind of a four-step process where we updated um, our nursing competency document, and we standardized the rooming procedure. Uh, we specifically taught nurses, but also all the primary care physicians how to accurately take a blood pressure, and we uh, made sure they understood the goals for blood pressure. Uh, number two, we, we wrote a clinical guideline on how to control blood pressure in patients with diabetes. Thirdly, and very importantly, we created a double-sided patient education and participation handout, which we used to engage patients, uh, number one, educating them in blood pressure, but number two, getting them to participate in in decisions regarding their own care. And fourthly, we created monthly patient lists that go out to all the primary care docs, um, informing them of of which patients were not at goal, and also, we sent out unblinded reports, literally report cards. So we did run into some challenges um, on the physician end. You know, we had this uh, this uh, challenge of clinical inertia, and that was uh, described in 2001. That term was coined, and it means failure of a healthcare provider to initiate or intensify therapy when it's indicated, with the provider recognizing the fact, but failing to act, and I think we, on the clinical side, we can all admit that, gee, patient's blood pressure today is not controlled. Why don't we recheck it in three months, and maybe with uh, five pounds of weight loss, we'll get a goal, and um, that's kind of how most of us practice, and one of the things we learned, which is now plank four of the AMGA Provider Toolkit Measure Up Pressure Down campaign is that we recognize we have to see these folks when we titrate medicines up every two to four weeks. That was a huge culture change. We got some pushback from the docs. So step one in our philosophy of change, we had to take the case for it. Why is that? And number one, the national guidelines, AMC7, recommended that. We highlighted clinical studies that uh, recognized that, and uh, AMGA actually posted a, a large retrospective study of high blood pressure patients with diabetes that demonstrated blood pressure control was achieved more quickly in patients who were brought back more frequently, increasing the tempo of visits. And the greatest benefit was found to be in patients who were brought back every two weeks. So we hardwired that into our process, into our, our clinical guidelines. And then we proved from our pilot, but also our system-wide results, that this uh, was effective. Um, I do want to highlight it, engaging the patient is key. Um, we really try to work as coaches with our patients. We don't force them to take medicines, um, but we educate them on blood pressure, and, and the tool we used was a double-sided um, handout we used 
with folks to educate them on what blood pressure is, the goals, and then um, engage them on what they would do within the intervening two weeks. So our results, um, in December of 2008, our blood pressure control rates in patients specifically with diabetes was at 38%. And that was shocking to us because we, we just assumed and felt like we were better than that, but that was what we were doing. Um, by the end of September 2012, we were up with 67% of our patients with diabetes at blood pressure goal, which we're still not happy with and we're still pushing to improve. Uh, even though we focused on our blood pressure control in patients with diabetes, though, we saw a pleasant surprise that our overall uh, control of, of our population with high blood pressure went from 53% in 2008 up to almost 80%, which is the uh, AMGA goal. And our, our internal goal is to get even above that. We're, we're working hard to achieve that. So, you know, we recognize that management of chronic disease is difficult. We didn't design a process just to run for a couple months and then finish. I mean, this is a long-term process we've been on since 2008. We're continuing the same uh, process efforts, simplifying it going forward and trying to engage patients and educating new physicians to the group that this is a priority for us. Um, we've learned we've got to keep the process interventions simple. Um, you have to make this doable. If it gets too complicated, the physicians just won't want to participate. And we've learned you have to be consistent with data reporting, giving unblinded performance feedback, and something we learned in 2010 is that when new uh, research or new guidelines become available, you have to be able to be nimble enough to change your goals. And when the Accord blood pressure trial came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010, at that time, we actually changed our goal for blood pressure control in patients with diabetes from less than 130 over 80 to less than 140 over 80, which ended up being adopted by the American Diabetes Association. So I just... That, that was our journey, and I'd, hopefully that was helpful to give some other groups an idea of how, how this is done uh, with yeah. focused process improvement efforts. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Phil, Dr. Phil. And I can see already people are starting to get some of their questions teed up in the chat. Um, we're going to now turn to Ola, but I want to just take uh, two minutes here or a minute uh, just to show you the poll results. It looks like about 166 of you took part. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the resounding impediment that most of you who did uh, respond to the poll is that, that you saw was that patients don't stick with their medications or adhere to self-management practices. So that's some very interesting food for thought. And there's a lot of um, interesting stuff in the news of late and studies about shared decision-making, and perhaps that can come up uh, a little bit more in our Q&A. And, uh, Ola, maybe that's uh, some kind of a hook <laughs> for you next. Yep. So th thanks for taking uh, part in the poll. And, again, all, the, all that information, people can uh, download it all after the show. Today it will be posted on our website, or you could ask for it at info at IHI.org. So, again, uh, Dr. Uh, Akin Babaya, a, uh, president of the Association of Black Cardiologists and a hypertension specialist up there in New York. Um, any thoughts about uh, the, the, this poll result here? And I, then, of course, my bigger question is to you, what parts of this uh, campaign platform do you think uh, or would you draw most attention to in terms of some of the things that are needed? And welcome again. Oh, thanks, Marge. Uh, you, you did touch on two very, very important areas right there. Uh, where I believe uh, healthcare providers uh, need to pay more attention. Uh, and these are uh, improving access to care and uh, adherence to medications. I, I think th these areas are key. Uh, I think it is no longer sufficient for us to simply look at, look at our role as just uh, providing appropriate medications to uh, patients who show up in our clinics for care. We also need to, to think about those who we are now seeing. Uh, we need to get involved in efforts to uh, broaden access uh, to healthcare for all people. And, and this includes, at least in my mind, uh, providing culturally appropriate uh, medical information to people uh, 
using channels that they are likely to be receptive to. And this has been the major focus of the approach of the Association of Black Cardiologists to uh, educating the community about hypertension. Uh, we have done many uh, programs in, uh, uh, in beauty and barbershops over the years uh, because we've come to recognize that uh, these are locations uh, where patients, uh, particularly in, in black communities, tend to congregate, uh, relax, uh, let their hair down, uh, no pun intended, and, and they tend to be receptive in that environment uh, to health information. Uh, particularly when delivered in partnership uh, with the barbers and the beauticians. We also partner quite often with um, uh, religious leaders to help them to help deliver health information to, uh, uh, to people in, in, in churches and mosques and other religious institutions. Now, in the area of adherence to medications, and that's another very important area, uh, we as providers tend to generally grossly overestimate how regularly our patients uh, take their medications. And um, we have a lot of data showing that, you know, less than 50% adherence rate across the board uh, uh, for most, uh, you know, for medicines taken for chronic conditions. And, and a major factor in terms of getting patients to uh, take their medications is really making them feel like a partner in the process. And, and this starts from, in my mind, uh, getting to know them beyond their clinical histories. You know, we have to keep in mind that when a, a patient sits across from us uh, in, in, our office, in our offices, uh, the first name of the patient is not hypertension and the last name is not diabetes. Uh, they, they are human beings with regular life issues, many things going on, and we need to show them that without probing too, I mean, too deeply that we are actually interested in their other life issues and how these issues impact on their abilities to take their medications regularly. So uh, to me, that's really key in terms of getting buy-in from the patients. I mean, showing the, you know, the fact that we are interested in them beyond just their systolic, diastolic blood pressure or their blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. And we also need to, again, you, you sort of touched on that quickly, Madge. We need to make sure we give them balanced information about the pros and cons of treatment and actually uh, have them join in in making decisions about what would be the best approach to take and not just you know, have this uh, paternalistic approach that, well, you have to take this medication. This is what you need to do. So, I mean, these are the two, these are the two main issues that I really think are key that we need to continue to focus on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ola, and I think you raised some very good perspective pieces that I think are kind of woven throughout this campaign uh, and the toolkit. Uh, as well as sort of need to be taken up uh, in some thoughtful ways uh, in terms of culture and discussion. I was just uh, looking at a quick column from uh, Pauline Chen in the Times who writes a column called Doctor and Patient where she's talking about uh, the eight minutes uh, that uh, a doctor may be spending with a patient today. I need to read the article more closely. And there was also recently a study in JAMA Internal Medicine that said when it came to hypertension, this seemed to be one area where uh, patients were saying that they had the least amount of discussion uh, with providers in terms of pros and cons and advantages and necessities. So uh, the research is there as well, as well as your thoughtful uh, comments as well, uh, Ola. So, all right, uh, we're going to kind of wrap up this first section now with Bob Matthews. And um, I really, uh, you know, talking about uh, your work with the medical groups in Southwest Ohio that your company manages um, in can achieve, or has been able to achieve some chronic disease outcomes that are the best in the nation, and that's clearly one of the reasons you're with us today. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, is effective engagement with patients with hypertension one of the underlying factors to the outcomes uh, that perhaps some of your practices are seeing? And welcome again. Thanks. Um, of course, it, it, yes, it's um, true that if patients aren't engaged and um, if patients don't participate in the care that they need for uh, hypertension or any other chronic condition, um, then you're not going to go very far. Um, but 
uh, what I might do just gently is weave together several of the themes that because I what we found is it's not one or another thing that um, causes poor outcomes in hypertension, even for those patient, patients who are receiving care. So Ola mentioned there's a whole bunch of patients who don't get care, and that is a terrible societal problem. But then, as Jerry and Phil talked, there are a whole bunch of patients who are coming into the doctor, and over a year or two years, their blood pressure remains perseverantly high. And why is that happening? And I think Jerry mentioned that we are an acute care-oriented system, and so a lot of doctors were trained that you listen to what the patient um, brings as a presenting concern, and you focus on that. Uh, we know that hypertension is a disease that often in many patients doesn't present symptoms that are of alarm or concern or pain, whereas something, sinus infection or whatever, is really terrible. And so they're focused on what hurts, not in a lot of cases. Um, we also know, as you just said, Madge, that there are, you know, in realistically in today's world, doctors have to move at a certain pace. And whether it's 8 minutes or 10 minutes or 12 minutes, um, there often are a lot of problems, and um, so the question is, how are we going to get to blood pressure? Um, what we found is that we did best by studying all of the things that you could have go wrong in treating blood pressure, all the things the patient can do, all the things the staff can do, all the things the doctor can do, and on and on and on, the, the larger environment with the PBMs that change the formularies every hour and a half and screw up our drug regimens and all that good stuff. And what we did is put together, um, and I'll go to Phil's words, a very specific processes that call for hypertension to be addressed on every visit when the patient comes. And one way to engage patients is to communicate that wow, we really think this is a big deal. We're, every time you come in, we're talking about your blood pressure and whether it's good or bad. And we use, for example, are you in the safe zone or are you not in the safe zone? Well, you know, if your blood pressure is high, I don't, somebody may or may not know what that means, but whether I'm in the safe zone or not safe zone has a more evocative kind of meaning and causes more dialogue. So... In a fairly thoroughgoing um, approach that really stressed um, focus on this with the patients, new communication methods with the patients, uh, and, and a, a very significant change in the way the staff and the doctor. The one thing I haven't heard yet and I think is very important to put in is that across American medicine, we now know because we work now with several groups, that it is not universally understood well among all physicians exactly what the biological and uh, physical dimensions of hypertension are and, and the pharmacology. So we actually have docs who are practicing medicine who are not really confident in uh, the way they address uh, blood pressures. And, of course, when you're not confident, uh, you tend to be kind of... Um, not so sure-footed, not so assertive, and, and all of that. So over a period of time, working with a population of about 40,000 patients that went from the fanciest neighborhoods in, in our community to literally inner-city socioeconomically challenged practices, we were able to get a population 93% uh, to goal, and that was including the diabetics and renal patients um, at the time. It was before the ACCORD study. Uh, and, and we were using the 129 goal for the renal and the diabetic patients, comorbid conditions. So I would, my summary here would be that you need a, a thoroughgoing um, program that addresses doctors, addresses uh, staff, addresses patients. And I would say just in summary that if you look at the um, where the elite groups, so uh, Jerry's, uh, I mean, Phil's group is certainly in the elite group uh, bucket here. Um, that they're, What we're trying to do uh, on here is move above this uh, 65, 70, 72% to get individual variables like BP, A1C, LDL, to get each variable up above 90%. Uh, that's a very important goal and will not be achieved unless there's a very focused effort. Thank you very, very much. 
And uh, I really appreciate all the thoughtfulness. And uh, the gentleman uh, joining us today did provide us all with some interesting slides. We didn't quite get all of them in there, uh, but they'll all be available when you uh, download uh, materials uh, from the program today. So thank you very much, Bob. All right. So we went over a little bit our our half-hour mark here, uh, and we're ready to uh, entertain some chat questions. John, a lot of folks are already in the chat with their thoughts as we've been going along, but do you want to just remind people very quickly how to do that? Yeah, of course. Just make sure that your uh, questions are addressed to all participants, so make sure the send to box has all participants, and that way that Madge and I in the studio and our guests listening in their office can also uh, see the questions. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I'm going to try and spread these around, or anyone is welcome uh, there were a number of questions that came up um, during uh, Dr. Phil's. How do your docs feel about sharing care responsibilities with pharmacists to do consultation, uh, titration, prescription? Um, and how do you teach providers to share info with pharmacists? Anybody want to take that one on? Well, I, I can take this. Jerry? Oh, I can take oh, that one. Oh, that's Phil. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, we um, culturally we have not had our pharmacists involved that much with blood pressure control, and and that would be you know something different from what we did before. But I can tell you, we would not be opposed to that. And in fact, we're looking as we continue to increase enrollment and try to simplify this. We're actually looking for ways to take the uh, work and some of the responsibility off the primary care docs who are just inundated with uh, patients, with computer physician order entry. And I think um, having pharmacists help is a great model, and I'm aware of um, other clinics doing that uh, from the AMGA Collaborative and also from conferences around the country. So if that's an option for you, I, I think that's a great, uh, great plan to basically create guidelines and then the pharmacists themselves can titrate patients up on the medications. Okay, thanks. Anyone else on pharmacists at all? Yeah, I can actually Ola, make a quick yeah. comment about that because right here in my practice, I actually work very uh, collaboratively with, uh, with with a pharmacist, and uh, it's been wonderful uh, because uh, they update me regularly about what is going on in terms of adherence. Uh, they tell me when patients have not filled their prescriptions, so I'm able to sort of keep track of things a lot better. So I think it's really, a, it can be a very uh, helpful relationship if one can develop a tight relationship with, uh, with the pharmacist and, uh, you know, ensure that um, we both keep track uh, of our medications and that patients are actually taking what uh, was prescribed to them. Thank you. Uh, there's a question that maybe, you know, all of you might address, but particularly uh, there on the front lines of medical practice, um, there was reference to prompts and electronic health records, and a uh, question is asking whether that would be indicating when blood pressure is out of range. I have a general comment that, and I, it's interesting, I had a series of meetings yesterday with a very large, very well-known medical group, and we, 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 we touched upon this topic that the idea of uh, having quality pop-ups is not a terrible idea, obviously. Reminding is good. But it's reactive. And what we're finding is that docs are overwhelmed by all these pop-ups. And uh, I personally do not think that we are going to be able, when you look at all the diseases that we need to improve, once we do better hypertension, there's... LDL and A1C and you can go on and on and on, asthma. If we're going to pop our way up to healthcare improvement, I think our docs are going to throw the computers through the window um, before we get there. So I personally am of more of the mind that you want to have a proactive quality plan for how doctors are going to do uh, hypertension care, LDL care, uh, A1C, whatever the other aspects are and not, uh, you know, sort of uh, throwing nags at them. And when I compare the results of organizations that have um, done a lot of the pop-ups, in general, they don't get very far above the 60 to 70% success per one variable. 
So if that was a great way to do it, I would think that you would have um, more, you'd have better outcomes. And, and again, I think when you think of all the things in medicine, if we just start popping them up all over, my docs won't tolerate it. Um, they, they can live with the process. They don't like pop-ups. Now, occasionally I think it's wise to have them for very threatening drug-to-drug interactions or other very alarming stuff, but I, I don't favor that approach myself. You know what? This is Phil from Sharpreece Daily. We, we actually do not have pop-ups, and I agree with Bob that I think pop-ups could, could get you some benefit, but they are very annoying for the frontline primary care docs who, you know, also are responsible for all the health maintenance measures. Um, and, and I agree with Bob, you have to really balance uh, pop-up and, you know, alert fatigue. So it may work in some systems. We don't have the capability of doing it with our EHR, and it's something we're looking at but um, have not made a decision on yet. Okay, thank you. Well, it sounds, this, I was just thinking that EHRs and pop-ups and what kinds of indicators uh, and uh, where we are in that whole uh, aspect of technology and process improvement <laughs> could be a very interesting uh, WYHI show unto itself. I want to ask a kind of cross-cutting question that I'm seeing in several um, areas here, and that is uh, Ola talked a lot really about the community uh, and education, uh, particularly on the issue of adherence. Uh, We're also talking about time crunches going on here. Some people are asking, how do you get specialty physicians engaged? Uh, Concerns about um, kind of administrative (laughs) uh, pressures uh, to move things along quickly. And uh, maybe, Jerry, I'll I'll, I'll go back to you. The the toolkit, I think, does... It's a, it really really drills down. Uh, it, it's it's like a, a dare I say a kind of a bible of really the best way to be treating patients uh, in the clinical environment in particular. Um, but what are your thoughts about this kind of community connection uh, and this ability to you know better integrate what's going on in healthcare with with the rest of people's lives and community groups, etc. You know, Madge, I, I think it's critical. Um, managing a chronic condition like diabetes or hypertension is quite challenging for many patients. You have a lot of things on your to-do list. You may have to go to one doctor or several doctors. You're expected to take medication somewhat. Sometimes you may be on a number of medicines. If you have a number of chronic conditions, all at different intervals, you're supposed to watch your diet. Uh, You're supposed to exercise. You're supposed to do all sorts of regular tests and a host of other things to keep under control on a daily basis. And the way I like to think about it is if you look at, if you will, a time pie chart, Patients with a chronic condition, if they visit their doctor four, maybe even eight times a year, that means they're spending a total of an hour or two with their physician. But if you look at where are they spending the rest of their time, the 9,000 hours in the rest of the year, they're in their home in their community setting. So I think we can't ignore that, and that's why we really have to support patients in managing their own health. And by supporting them, that means a lot of what Ola Uh, was talking about is really engaging patients, talking with them, communicating with them in new ways so that they become, if you will, empowered, active partners. And that means a little bit on both sides. The patients have to take some risks like asking questions, maybe uh, coming forward with concerns, and then the physicians have to be receptive to those type of conversations about what's really going on in their lives and how can we work together as partners to improve your health. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, another kind of cross-cutting question, which is sort of who needs to be engaged. The toolkit does, uh, Phil addressed this some in the chat as well, uh, looking at competencies and making sure things are actually done the way they're supposed to be. We think it all looks fairly simple, the cuff, uh, you know, pump the pumping up, et cetera, uh, but there really are right and wrong ways to do this. And um, I wonder, I don't know, uh, Dr. Phil, if you want to or Bob, I'm curious uh, about the competencies and who is kind of 
needing uh, to have these skills sharpened the most? And are there others who could be trained? Um, people are certainly, we all know there are places people can stop in sometimes and have your blood pressure checked, uh, you know, either in a kind of one-stop place in a, sh- uh, a shopping mall or perhaps others, though, others who could be trained to do this well in the community. But I'm curious about the competency issue. Dr. Phil, you want to talk about that? Yeah, we internally focused our competency specifically for the for all of our nursing staff, not just in primary care, but every nurse in every outpatient clinic in every specialty. And that's become an annual competency that we've prioritized, and we have uh, dual-headed scopes that um, our nurse supervisors and seasoned, you know, kind of hypertension champion nurses once a year have every frontline nurse, LVN, and medical assistant go through. Um, I did not, we did not mandate that for the physicians, but I've um, periodically, especially when we started the program, sent out the nursing competency document to all the physicians, including the specialists, telling them, look, this is how you take a blood pressure, because a lot of times our physicians themselves will, will repeat the blood pressure in the room. And then a key process step for us was, if a repeat blood pressure was done, that needs to get into the electronic health record in the vital section of the electronic health record because that's where we pull our data from, not just dictated in the physician's note. So it, it really we focused on the frontline nurses. We don't use community health workers in our system, although that is being piloted in San Diego County um, by some other systems right now. Uh, as part of as part of one of the uh, CMS grants um, regarding that that process, and I, you know, I think that I'm hoping that will be effective because uh, we believe in community outreach. We just not classically have not been very involved in that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious. I guess maybe Ola, I'll ask you. I mean, is there a connection between what you do and what's going on in your provider organizations and community screenings? I, I dare say that most of us would think that's a good idea. These community screenings they build awareness and perhaps might you know indicate some issues. But are does <laughs> does engagement at that level kind of uh, wind its way? Uh, it, it, are are you likely to see that patient? In other words. Yeah, yeah, that's a key point. We actually have a, when I say we, now I'm talking about the Association of Black Cardiologists. We actually have a whole network of uh, community health advocates that we spend a lot of time training. Uh, And then these advocates are sort of linked to providers so that in addition to giving information to patients and checking their blood pressures, uh, they also have... Uh, ways to, um, uh, to 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 refer these patients when uh, they they have very high blood pressures, and for those who are uninsured, they know the safety nets in their community that they can uh, that they can refer these patients to. So I, I think yeah, I think it's the whole issue of being of setting up a network that you know tries as much as possible to not leave anyone out. Again, we say that, but quite often. We're challenged by the fact that there might not be enough safety nets because there are many people who are uh, uninsured or underinsured. But hopefully with the new changes in the healthcare system, uh, many of those problems will go away. And we are also very big in encouraging patients to monitor their blood pressures. And one of the things I try to do quite often is to uh, ensure that the patient brings the monitor to my office to actually validate that the measurements are accurate. Because quite often, these patients buy monitors and they use them at home and then they get some crazy reading. Whoops. It's an elevation in their blood pressure because of anxiety provoked by that high reading. So I always uh, like to make sure I, you know, check that monitor, make sure it works well. And I've come to realize that it sort of goes across the board from the very expensive ones to the cheap ones. They all have a very high likelihood of, uh, you know, having large error margins. And it's important to identify that, let the patients know so they don't get very nervous when they check their blood pressures. Right, exactly. I mean, that. I guess the hope is is that that will give uh, patients some sense of... Uh, 
some control and engagement with the whole situation, and then there needs to be a, a good sense about what to do with the information. All right, this is a, uh, proving to be a really good discussion about some complicated issues and very important ones. Just a quick comment uh, from John about something coming up here, and then we'll go back to the discussion. John? Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, well, effectively managing chronic conditions like hypertension and high blood pressure requires staff who work efficiently and can shape and frame care to provide the best care for each individual patient. Uh, and to get a head start, we are inviting you to join us this August here in Boston for IHI's Improvement Science in Action, a four-month journey into the improvement science. Learn how to apply principles, tools, and methods of improvement science and put those new skills to work, improving patient care back home. Improvement Science in Action will be held August 12th through 14th here in Boston. For more information, visit IHI.org backslash ISIA. Thanks, John. All right, uh, just uh, we'll take a couple more questions. A few people have asked about medications right now, and uh, short of uh, <laughs> promoting any particular uh, brand, uh, generic or otherwise, um, kind of where are we on the sort of front lines in terms of medication management issues that may come up for patients? Are there instances when there's more than one medication needed? Uh, Bob, maybe I'll uh, throw this at you if that's okay. Sure. Um, if you, I think it's very well studied in the literature that um, there are many patients, not all, but many that will a require medication therapy, and b that um, many of the patients will require multiple medications, and this causes obviously for some patients um, various issues, and, and it's certainly a place where physician engagement is and patient engagement are very, very important. Um, if I would encourage your um, I would encourage your participants to go and look if they have EHRs and can pull the data. What most groups find is that the vast percentage of the patients that are receiving medication are on one or two agents. And well, there's certainly not a, a super majority who need three or four. There are if you're going to have a well-controlled population, you're going to have some patients on multiple medications. And so the issue is really, again, are doctors confident in, in very uh, clearly understanding how to properly um, medicate and dose patients and how to titrate uh, up you know, medications when uh, one agent or one dose doesn't work? Um, and if... If you were to go around and look, and this is one of the problems we have, there are, in fact, a lot of patients in the country who are on therapy, and the therapy isn't the right therapy. So we can hire nurse practitioners and case managers and health coaches and all sorts of people to help them, and all of those things are great, but if they're on the wrong medicine uh, or not on the right medicine, um, it, it, in the end, you won't get the results you want. The money shot here is to get the patient to a safe blood pressure goal. The last thing I wanted to just briefly mention is that during the course of our, if you go back to our slide about over the years, there came a moment when um, lots of drug companies, uh, lots of dr these drugs went generic and lots of, um, of the um, health drug stores now have great drugs for $10, 90 days. So even if you're a relatively very poor person, um, you know, if you can get well on one or two uh, drugs and you can get those drugs for generically for 90 days for 10 bucks or, or uh, $4 for a 30-day supply, that really helps a lot. And that's one of the better things that's happened in this effort over the last several years. Thanks. Very good, Bob. Okay, I'm going to try and slam in a few more things. Uh, let me, I'll throw this uh, maybe back to either Ola or Dr. Phil. Telehealth, people are wondering if that is in any way uh, something that's uh, being looked at more in terms of helping uh, monitor and engage folks with uh, high blood pressure. And then there was another question about 24-hour blood pressure monitoring device in primary care offices to in assist in and optimizing blood pressure control. Dr. Phil, let me start with you, and I guess these are kind of quick answers since we're coming to the top of the hour. 
Okay. Um, quick answer. The data does show that, that blood pressure, ambulatory blood pressure and blood pressure outside of the office um, correlates better with patients' risk for endpoint events like heart attack, stroke, uh, kidney damage, and even early death. In California, we are part of um, the state's pay-for-performance program run by the um, Integrated Healthcare Association in which all the health plans kind of create rules on, on quality metrics that we get to share um, with savings in, and they, they only accept in-office blood pressure. So we're using in-office blood pressures, and we have not done home ambulatory monitoring telehealth, um, blood, you know, patients keeping track of their own blood pressure. Honestly, I think we should be doing that, and I hope in the future we, we will be doing that. Okay. Very good. Uh, Ola, any thoughts on uh, either of those things? Yeah, no, I think Phil uh, talked on the key points there. And uh, even beyond that, I also look at, you know, using technology to improve adherence. Now we have systems where uh, there are paging systems that can help remind patients uh, right. You know, pill boxes that can actually be programmed to remind patients to take their medicines. So there's no question that telehealth uh, has a big role to play, particularly in improving access. Um, now, there are ways to look at using cell phones to track blood pressure, to track heart rhythms, because wherever you go now, everyone has a, has a cell phone, even uh, in the most remote areas. So, yeah, down the road, we're really very hopeful that we can, you know, improve many of these access issues to care through telehealth. All right. Thank you. All right. I want to thank all of you. And, Jerry, I'm going to give the very last word to you. Uh, Each of our guests has been just so outstanding and so, so helpful behind the scenes in preparing for today. There's a lot going on here. You you do have to go to the website and look at the toolkit, look at all the webinars. And, Jerry, that is kind of the last question. I'll I'll, I'll give it to you. Somebody's saying, is there a webinar that explains this campaign so that I can show it to my director? Well, we just happen to have one. (laughs) Come to our website, and what we've been doing is every month since January, having one webinar on each of the planks. And those webinars, the slides as well as the recordings are available on the website. So if you're interested in planks one through four, we're up to four already, you're welcome to uh, download and listen to those. And many people are sharing those with your staff. We also have, in December, we had an orientation webinar that really explained the entire campaign to all the participants at that time, and you're welcome to look at that. So, yeah, come visit MeasureUpPressureDown.com, and if you look under the Health Professionals button in the upper right-hand corner, that'll get you to all sorts of useful materials, including the provider toolkit and all materials submitted by groups like Sharp Restilly, like PrimeMed, that have done just amazing work in high blood pressure. And we are so fortunate that they, and Dr. Ola as well, are willing to share their knowledge uh, with not just all the other AMGA groups, but really with all, all the groups across the country and all the physicians and providers and care teams. So well, thank um, we're you. real proud of where we've been. Okay. Well, thank <laughs> you, Jerry and Bob and Ola and Dr. Phil. And we really uh, had the wonders of the combination of all of your wisdom and experience today and help in preparation. Um, really, this toolkit is quite rich. And uh, one of the things I also really appreciate about it is that it does indicate uh, where some of the interesting practices came from, and it shows some of the early work that was done that rolled up into what really amounts to a big uh, spread campaign. So big thank you also to all of you who joined us today. You've been part of a very, very active chat. You're sharing information with one another, and a reminder that you can, of course, download uh, that chat along with all the other resources you're prompted uh, and asked about at the end of the program. You can certainly also uh, take a peek at IHI's Facebook page after today's show. We'll have a couple comments up there and you can uh, uh, add yours to it if you'd like. Next up on WIHI on June 20th, uh, large-scale change across the country, learning from Scotland. IHI is welcoming a new executive vice president, Derek Feely from Scotland, uh, who's been a major force for change in the Scottish healthcare system. He'll be joining us. He's joining WIHI, but more importantly, I suppose he's joining IHI in September, uh, our staff, and um, we're going to have his arrival as a great excuse to talk about a number of issues about global improvement.
improvement, what we can all learn from one another. So again, you can download the chat, the slides. You can also look for all those resources on IHI.org tomorrow. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morris, excuse me, Matt, Matt Morris, and Nicole Wells. And we do have these original arrangements uh, that open and close the show. We had some nice kind of boppy music at the very beginning just to get us in a summery mood. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all and improving health for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks to the audience today. Thanks to our guests. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thank you.